Howdy, y'all. Welcome into South of Scruffy Podcast. I'm Ben Fields. This is my podcast. You're here. Got an awesome guest on the show today. Ross Bustin is here. Ross is a guy whose name I've heard for a long time. I've seen his name in credits, and I've seen that he has worked with some of my close friends, both friends in the music industry and friends in the film and television industry. Uh, So we've been one degree of separation away from each other for a long time, and we uh, finally made the connection, and I'm very glad we did. Ross is a talented dude. We talked a little bit of shop here. I mean, we talked about the film and TV business, how he got into it, how it's changing, and how you got to stay on top of it to keep the needle moving. But we had a good time. Ross is a very kind man, and I hope we get to uh, work together some down the road. But but yeah, you guys enjoy the chat. Here's my talk with Ross Bustin. We're doing the pop Man, I am. Uh, I'm glad we. I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah, Ross Bustin. That's like the best name maybe I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, growing up, um, I got a lot of of nicknames with the last name. Um, yeah, I, I could see how you could make some crude, uh, some some crude uh, nicknames out of it. Yeah, the, there was a couple, um, couple that that stuck, but uh, <laughs> I cu- feel like it should have an apostrophe after it, right? Like, yeah, and and, <laughs> and the crazy thing is, like, when you describe like on the phone, like when somebody asked me my last name and. I say bust and they're like spell it, um, and I'm like B U S T I N, and they're like cool. Ross is like Dustin. It's always like Dustin. They can the D and the B. Uh, I don't know. There's something about yeah. that. Yeah. So then I have to like, it's it's like busting without the G. Yeah, that's how you that's how you uh, yeah. explain. I should people. start putting an apostrophe though. I think that'd be bussing bussing for real for real <laughs> i uh, uh the, the b and d thing has gotten me my entire life i'll go i go pick up to go orders and uh they're like here you go dan you know entire life on the phone i, I started i remember i was uh, working in a restaurant and i ultimately started answering the phone this is benjamin how may i help you because it was, uh, it was. Hey, Dan. Uh, we got three people coming in later. Can we get a table? Yeah, it's kind of like I've had to start speaking in like military speak. It's like B as in boy, U.S. <laughs> yeah, and, and beta always, foxtrot. And I'm like, so, so you can't mess it up. So, yeah. So no, Dustin, and and there, there's times that just people can't grasp it, and so I'm just I roll with it. I, I've been seeing your name around. Uh, in the you know this is the first time we met but i've i've been very aware of your work for a while and i've seen you working with you know a lot of uh, a lot of people that i've worked with in the past I see you in moon taxi stuff i think um and then you know we talked a little bit about fishing uh, content before we started i hadn't seen any yeah. of that yet but um i know eddie resendez is a is a friend of yours yeah. he's a he's a friend of the podcast too yeah. uh he's a great man uh, but what's your, what's the stuff with moon taxi that I see? Yeah. So, um, basically kind of in a nutshell, I just travel around with them and take photos and video, you know, on the road, um, and just kind of document that and, uh, give them some content to, to push. Um, and, um, during COVID it kind of changed as well. Uh, when everything shut down, it became more of the live streams, um, mm. So I started doing a little directing with that and going over to Nashville and doing some of that. And then, um, you know, once kind of touring resumed, um, it was just, it was back on the road and just have a camera with me and 
uh, yeah, just kind of document offstage stuff, uh, show stuff, um, sponsor stuff. So it's, uh, and I, I think, you know, Wes, you had Wes uh, Bailey on yep. for one of the episodes. Um, so he's a, a Knoxville staple. But um, yeah, it, it's a good time. It's uh, it's fun. It's, uh, you know, they give a lot of creative freedom with it. So it's, you know, it's learning a lot of things along the way, but also still um, have learned a lot and kind of developing um, kind of cool, innovative content with it has been fun. Have you done their music videos? Or uh, does somebody else do those? So I haven't. The uh, I guess the last one they did was I think it was last year, but for a song called "Say," um, and they had a I, th- I guess they got an agency um, out of Nashville. So they they don't do a ton of music videos, but we are um, we've done a lot of like live sessions mm-hmm. uh, during I guess it was during COVID. Um, I met up with a couple of them at one of uh the uh, guys house spencer uh, yeah. in the band and we hung by the pool and uh they just kind of set up some stuff and played and we filmed some sessions doing yeah. that spencer has a studio at his house doesn't he uh he does upstairs but i know he works a lot as well with um a producer uh Jakir king in gotcha. nashville yeah i remember wes saying that a lot of their stuff came from you know of course comes from spencer spencer's head and spencer writes a lot of their music um but uh i I feel like they had recorded maybe an album or two and i'm sure he's moved since then but i know that he kind of was one of those guys that would have a had a propensity to have a home studio and and produce yeah he's definitely got that uh the the room the space in the house where you know you can record and, and produce and all that um but yeah his his musical iq you know all the guys in the band are insanely talented with yeah with music and it's it's cool dynamic to watch and it's um it kind of blows my mind how you know once they start jamming just kind yes. of uh just and can just go with it but uh you know i was always uh always like tuned in on on spencer for a long time because it's just he's just kind of a sleeper back there and you realize he can shred a guitar and then I it was almost like the Prince phenomenon too with with Trevor and Moon Taxi. You just you don't notice how talented that how talented of a guitarist he is because of his showmanship. And you overlook it and then you start to you start to realize like, no, this guy's legit too. Really legit. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they all blow me away with their talent. And uh it is. I, I think the dynamic of the band, like the different personalities of the band, how they come together, like is cool too. Because I mean that you know they've been playing for, for so long, way way before I, um, you know, was ever with them. Um, and kind of a, a fun side story is. So one of the first video gigs I ever did, um, I was an intern um, with Lock and Key at the time. Oh, nice! Uh, but this was back in like 2014, I think. I love and, those guys. Um, their blank fest was going on in market square oh yeah and and moon taxi was headlining one night yeah and that was the first time i ever heard of them seen them anything and that was like kind of one of the first video gigs i ever did as an intern and we we shot that show um back then and then through the years they you know kept coming to town and i'd go see them and then i didn't really start doing like music and concert photography until like 2018 
and they were the first show that I got a photo pass for, like the Mill and Mine. Really? And, uh, so just shot for the Mill and Mine, took some pictures, and then it just kind of came full circle because it's like, you know, here we are now. Um, and I'm, you know, they were kind of like my first thing I did, and now, you know, here we are. So it's it's kind of a cool, for me, kind of a full, cool uh, full circle moment with that. Are you on the road with them anytime they tour? Pretty much. Um, I would say 99% of uh, shows they do. There's a couple of like, you know, maybe private events or stuff that they do that there isn't necessarily content needed for. But, uh, you know, pretty much if, if they're on the road, uh, you know, I'm with them. It's so smart for really any brand, anybody to, you know, to attach a content creation person for still photography and video to anything they do. If you do, if you're doing something at a high level, I was, uh, well, because it, it, it has returned, it returns. You have to be in social media spaces. You have to be in digital content creation spaces as any kind of brand now anyway, but it almost will just return pay for itself. If you're putting out content all the time and, uh, pretty much employing Ooh, FedEx is here. <laughs> Thank you so much for no coming around back. There you are, sir. Thanks a lot. No problem. You Take care. You too. New gear day. <laughs> Just got some new gear. FedEx came and brought a camera that I'm taking to Mexico. Sponsored by Lens Rentals. <laughs> the, and Recess. Yeah. The, uh, uh, the shooting the fly fishing stuff is so hard on gear that I just rented a camera instead. Of I don't blame you. I don't blame you. The, the sand and water, salt water and all that. But another great example of like, we're this group of guys that I'm shooting stuff with for the fly fishing content. It's like, we'd be stupid. We're doing something so cool that we would be stupid not to document it with high quality video and high quality still photography. And I think it's cool that moon taxi sees the value in that. I know, um, there's this major league, it's not major league fishing anymore. I don't think that took off, but it's like, you know, the bass, uh, whatever they had here, what was it called? The, uh, the Bassmaster. Bassmaster per, yeah. The, champion, yeah. Championship, what, yeah. So there, there's a, uh, uh, an angler that's pretty popular on that tour. His name's Brandon Polinick and he, uh, employs a full-time content creation person and pays them a salary to, and he's part of his team and follows him around the country and they create content that ultimately adds to Brandon Polinick's popularity uh, because, you know, he, he has a huge social media following and a huge YouTube following and it's like, it just helps his brand and he could not do that. He could just go out and fish the tournaments, but he wouldn't be nearly as popular. Yeah. It, and it's, it's so wild how much money people can make off of like YouTube, like a yeah. YouTube channel. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Yeah. Uh, I, I never really got into having a YouTube channel, um, but I've seen people make a, a legitimate living out of just YouTube. I mean, these guys that have a million subscribers, yeah. they have staffs working for them, you know, three or four people. It's the that, most insane thing to me. Yeah, it is. But I don't know. It's it's exciting because it, it makes you realize that 
you know, the barriers of entry are going away. You no longer need a, the backing of a television network in order to make content that gets seen by people. Yeah. You can just do it yourself and it's going to exist on its own merit or, or succeed or fail on its own merit. Totally. You know? Which is, is nice. I mean, and, and I get into this with the podcast too. It's like pretty low barrier to entry, got some gear, got, you know, takes a lot of time maybe, but it's also such a crowded space now. Yeah. That it you can't just you can't just make something that is either uh, th that the marketplace doesn't want and it be successful, if that makes sense. It ha there has to be a there has to be a need for it and it has to be good. Um, just making it isn't going is isn't going to get you rich on YouTube. Just making something, yeah, it has to be good. People yeah. have to attach to it, and then you have to you know use the channels to monetize it, yeah, as well. And uh, I think that's you know, a big part of, of where music thrives as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I tried to talk to Wes Bailey a little bit about that. Like has Spotify ruined music? <laughs> like how do you even make money anymore? You know? And it's, it's playing shows, I guess is a big part of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I also work with some, some other bands that are smaller. So it's cool to see that dynamic of how, um, a smaller band operates, mm. um, you know, versus, you know, someone who's, you know, made it big. Um, and, and on the, the same note with that, like a band that's labeled versus an indie band and how those operate. Gotcha. Um, you know, the, the bands that I'd started out with, like really doing content for on a consistent basis were more of indie bands and there's still multiple indie bands that, that I work with. Um, and, you know how they operate and their kind of mindset with it is is different than what it is to be labeled and I, to me it's kind of like a you think about it with us like you know being staffed for versus being freelance like mm. there's there's some you know kind of different mindsets with it yeah uh, so if you're labeled you would you would be kind of a staff position you're always working on the music if you're an indie artist then maybe you've got something else that helps you pay the bills whether it's studio work or, or you know audio post production or something hopefully adjacent to the business yeah totally and uh, uh yeah i think there's just uh you know pros and cons to each like indie artist you know really has full creative control over everything um and you know if, if you're labeled i guess there's a little bit more um control over it i know i've done some uh music videos for labeled artists before and there was a lot of legality and a lot of contracts to sign and stuff like that non-disclosures right yeah <laughs> and then uh but working with an indie band you just kind of call up and or go have a beer and and talk about what you want to do and it's like cool let's do it and then you show up and you do it yeah um, so so there's pros and cons you know budgets that you know there's a whole world of of what you could get into pros and cons, but yeah. And the music industry is, you know, like, like anything else, it's, it's never been, uh, it's never been known as this industry that is not cutthroat or that is not that, that, that coddles your feel uh, uh, an industry that coddles your feelings or cares how you feel like it. It's always been a business where kind of cash is really the most important thing, you know, to record labels and, and things like that. So I would assume, I would assume that when you do start working with with record labels, like they're probably still, even though you're working with a labeled band, 
you know, I bet they're still pretty, uh, they're still pretty careful with how they spend their money and they don't just want to, you know, throw it away. They want to make sure they're going to scrutinize you using it. I'm certain of that. For sure. Yeah. And, uh, they're, they're going to make sure that, you know, they do get their money's worth out of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that, you know, they also do give you a, a good budget, do which, they? which, uh, which is the pro to it. And it, it kind of gives you some, uh, you know, freedom to actually bring on some bigger things to do with it. Um, that's good when you can, when you, it, it it's hard to divorce creative from the money that you have to spend. It always helps to know. And in my opinion, it always helps to know how much money you can spend. So, so you know how big your ideas can be. And that's always a really helpful tool, whether you're making anything and, and I, and I always, anything in the video world, uh, because stuff is expensive and, and, you know, if your ideas are not in line with the money that you have to spend, then you're going to end up, uh, over promising or under promising or, you know, it's not going to do the project any service to not at least think about what you have to spend before you start. And I try to tell people that all the time because especially people that like clients that we go to work with, I always ask them if, you know, if they want us to do a project with them, I always ask them how much money they want to spend on it. And I know that that's like, that seems, that seems hard from their standpoint, but it's really great to be honest because then we can, we can back engineer to that number. But, uh, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to have to read your mind where I want to put the, the creative or the production value um, on stuff. Do you feel like it helps you to know um, what a budget is when you're coming up with creative ideas? Uh, I think a ballpark at least. Yeah. Um, and then if it's something that I feel like there needs to be a bigger budget, then I can go into it and, and be able to kind of spell out with them. Like, this is why I think we need a bigger one. Um, but but I agree with you. It's It's always kind of like that. You know, when somebody will hit me up out a project, they're like, you know, so what would you charge for that? And it's, I kind of just get like the base of what the project is, like, you know, what they want to do, not necessarily having really sat down and, and gone over the logistics of what's going to go into it. Like, I'm going to have to bring other people on, you know, how, how are we going to produce this? Um, and so it's tough to give like an on the spot answer yeah. um, and, and to no fault of them, I, you know. Price is a, a big thing, but it, it's something that I almost just kind of have to kind of sit down and really think about um, yeah. and just kind of like put together everything that would be needed. Um, and, you know, kind of with, with the concerts, it was like, uh, I remember the days of, you know, because I, I shot shows at the Millamine and Bijou in Tennessee for basically just a photo pass for free yeah. um just go out there and build some stuff and i remember the first uh show that i did at the mill of mine that they actually paid me for i got like a 50 dollar check and i was like man you can make money doing this like that's that that was it for me i was just like <laughs> yeah. all right you can make money so like you know just just keep going with it did it start with still photography for you or video uh for for the music or for career i think just in in career in general uh, for career in general, it was video. Um, my aunt got married and just had like a small handy cam. Um, mm -hmm. and at this time I was actually 
uh, down at UTC. Um, I was majoring in criminal justice and, and playing football. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was kind of like a – it was like a different world. A different um, life. Yeah. And I and it never, to me, was like, yeah, I want, you know, I want to do this industry or anything. And so my aunt got married and basically just had this handy cam and just kind of asked me to, like, put it in the back, you know, on a tripod and just hit record. And that kind of turned into me walking around with it, like, just, you know, get – interviewing family members kind of you know like the wedding thing yeah and uh and then after that put it on the computer edited it and i was like you know this is kind of fun um and from there just kind of started playing around with editing and stuff and, and got my first camera and i uh, went to pellissippi and, and did the thing and uh that's uh that's where eddie and i were uh that's introduced uh, yeah shout out to eddie yeah. um but uh, little sparrow yeah, <laughs> that's good. I'm gonna change. I'm gonna change uh, my phone contact form to that. You should. Um, or Eddie Sparrow, right? Eddie, Eddie not, Sparrow. not Little Sparrow. Eddie Sparrow. I like Little Sparrow. I, I do too. I think. I think he'd rock with Little Sparrow. If he ever makes a comeback, I think he could do it. <laughs> um, where Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, I was born in Nashville. Okay. Um, and moved to Maribel when I was young. Grew up in Maribel. Okay. Um. Parent parents uh, got a new job or something. Yeah, my my dad came over here and uh, he's a, a CPA at a construction oh. company here in town. Nice. So he's doing that. Uh, mom's always worked from home, so it's kind of nice growing up, like always having her home. Your mom's an OG, work from home. My, yeah, yeah. She What'd was she working do, from piano home lessons? before it was cool. She was the work from home hipster. <laughs> was she? Yeah. But, <laughs> what did she do? From home. How do you uh, work from home in 1998? Yeah, so she, um, when I was young, she was a nurse. Okay. Um, but then she got a job um, as a medical case manager. Um, so I like really don't fully know what she does, but I know <laughs> she's really good at it. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> they've kept her around for a really long time and she's moved up. So that's great. Uh, shout out mom to being a hard worker. Yeah. Um, and dad. That's, that's like, that's my wife too. Same, yeah. same kind of deal. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so it was, it was always nice growing up, like having her home and stuff, like yeah. having, having the cookies ready when I got home from school. <laughs> like it was, it's a big it part. Great. It's a big part of it, man. Being, uh, it's uh, like, go, raising little kids myself right now like there's definitely some fomo involved with like i don't want to be i don't want to be working yeah all the time and not be able to see my kids like i want to be able to take them to school i want to i want to be able to you know be home a little bit for at, sure. it, at night <laughs> you for, know, sure. for those for those because it i think it matters i think it's a big deal and you you know how old are you 30 31 31 yeah i mean looking back on that fondly and appreciating it now in your thirties, yeah. like appreciating totally. that your, that your, your family took, took time and to, um, build a home life that, that, that was impactful. That's, that's good. That's what I want my kids to do. And when they're, when they're 30 is, is look back and say, I'm, I'm glad mom and dad took the time to, to do that. Cause I think it's important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And... Well, what brought you guys to, uh, 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 Maryville instead of Knoxville or did you go to Maryville high school? Uh, I did. Okay. That's a good school, right? Yeah, it was great. I enjoyed it. Um, still am friends and keep up with so many people that, that I went to school with, which is cool. Really? Um, uh, so my another cool thing is like uh, my grandparents 
um, are in Mirable. Oh, cool. Um, so it was, yeah, it was kind of like, I don't think my parents wanted to move to Knoxville, actual, mm. like, move Knoxville to Knoxville. Probably. They'd rather, you know, be in Mirable closer to my grandparents. Um, so we moved there. And um, since then, my my other set of grandparents have moved over here. They used to split time between Hawaii and here. Oh, wow. Um, so have you been to Hawaii? Yeah. So actually, I have uh, cousins, aunts, uncles over there. That's um, awesome. What's it? We, what, what what island? So they're on Kauai, the okay. northernmost. Is, um, I is, tell people it's uh, in the Jurassic Park movies when they're like flying <laughs> yeah. up on the coast. Yeah. That's Kauai. Okay. Uh, is it awesome? It's pretty great. Um, have to go? Do I have to go? Yeah, and I would say if you go to Hawaii, Kauai will give you the most local feel. Okay. Um, it doesn't feel overly touristy. Okay. Um, so, I but I, maybe I'm a little biased. Is uh, is it possible to hop around the islands when you're there? Yeah. Is, uh, is it expensive to get flights? Uh, now I'm not sure, but I, it wasn't astronomical. Um, I, it is basically catching a flight. It's, yeah. you know, they don't really have any sort of ferry system or anything. Yeah. Cause the, the distance between islands are the, at least the, the bigger ones are, uh, more than you think. Really? Cause the crazy thing is like when we would fly out there, um, Usually we'd stop in like L.A. Yeah, and then fly from L.A. to Honolulu to yeah. Kauai, which is like it's 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 like a six hour flight. It's a six from, hour flight from yeah. L.A. You know, you look at it on a map, you're like, eh, it doesn't you know seem that far, but yeah, it's it's a whole six hour flight, and it's also a six hour time difference, isn't yeah. it, from Eastern time. So that yeah, every time we were over there, that first day the jet lag we were up at like 4 30 which yeah. was great because that first day you always got to get up and just watch the sunrise oh um, yeah so it was it was kind of a win but it was definitely an adjustment it's what it's what i mean it's it's almost like i don't know i guess if you're on the west coast it'd be a little bit different but for us i mean it's farther away than europe yeah and the same amount of time and the uh the same amount of time difference in the opposite direction and so yeah jet lag is at play now right yeah and so both of my mom's sisters live over there okay and uh still so it is it's kind of like when she's like well i need to talk to him it's kind of like well you gotta Think if it's noon it. here it's 6 a.m there dude you know? I, me and my wife can't keep in touch if we're if one of us is in pacific time yeah you know like she went to uh visit a friend for um I think it was Memorial Day weekend and she was in San Francisco or the Bay Area somewhere. And we just couldn't couldn't line up like couldn't catch yeah. each other. Like she'd call when she had time and I'm, you know, getting the kids in bed or something and the other way around. It happens every single time I travel to the West Coast for work too. Just can't make it line up. There's something about the three hour time difference yeah. where things are just happening. Uh, you're zigging while they're zagging. Yeah. Once <laughs> once I graduated college, I went with my two best friends um and we backpacked through Europe. Oh, awesome. Um, but before, earlier that summer, so like in June, we had gone to Kauai to see my family. We were there for, I don't know, around two weeks. Wow. So we were six hours behind. And then I came home and I think I was home for, it was like a week and a half. It was not long at all. And then I went to Europe and was six hours ahead. Dude, I bet your bio clock. I mean, it, it took me, it took me months to recover from that one. Really? I was, yeah, it was it was weird. I think I've got the jet lag going to Europe figured out. I think I've got it. And so what what I've done, and it's worked like the last three times I've gone, is when I 
uh, you always leave the U.S. At, in the afternoon, like four, five, six, seven o'clock at some point. And then your flight is like six or eight hours, depending on where you're going. Frankfurt, London, Amsterdam, somewhere like that. So when you leave in the afternoon or early evening, first off, you can't drink a lot because you, you got you to gotta go to sleep. And you have to, because you're losing six hours, you have to you have to get a good night's sleep, but you have to go to bed at seven o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> and then because we because your flight arrives and it's the morning time. So you have to arrive refreshed in Europe. And then the hardest part is staying up. You have to stay up that whole next day. You can't take a nap or it wrecks the whole thing. And you have to stay up as hard as it is, go to bed at a normal time, nine o'clock at night, ten o'clock at night, and then you wake up on the right schedule the next day. That's been my uh, experience the last three times I've gone. That's been my tactic, and it has worked. And I just wake up on the right time in the right right world. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to adopt that one. We uh, we started out in Amsterdam, and I remember that first night. Like uh, Anytime that I'd take a trip with these friends, it's always like, all right, the first night's going to be chill night to like catch up on sleep. And uh, it, it never happens. That first night when we were in Amsterdam, we – it was like 4 a.m. And like really? we, we even like got back to our Airbnb. And I don't know. It was probably like two o'clock or something. And we all just laid in bed for like two hours <laughs> and just couldn't fall asleep. And uh, yeah, finally, finally we did. And that next day, it, uh, you know, I, I don't remember it being like too, too much of like a, a jet lag, but it definitely like kept us up. Whereas in Kauai, it wakes us up. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Yep. That's, it was a trip. <laughs> the other way I can't figure out, I can't figure out how to get, I'm always screwed up when I come home from Europe, when I travel that direction against, against the time change. Yeah. That's, that always messes me up. Uh, how'd you like Amsterdam? Amsterdam was amazing. Yeah. I love that city. This, I don't know. I just felt like the most peaceful place. It's, yeah. It's and a, it's like kind of, it's, I don't know. It does have New York vibes a little bit, but it also seems cleaner for some reason. That the architecture is beautiful. The I forget canals. like the exact statistic, so um, I don't know. Someone will probably go Google and prove me wrong. But uh, I, I wanted to say it was like something ridiculous. Like for every one car, there's like fifteen, twenty bikes or something. Yeah. So everybody's just riding bikes everywhere. So it's like a city where there's like obesity is not a thing because everybody's, you know, always active. Yep. Uh, the food's great. Um, and I think the cool thing about it too was like out of all the places we went, that's where people spoke the best English. So it was easy to communicate. You know why? Movies taught the Dutch how to speak English. They subtitled english-speaking films instead of overdubbing them in television so like go to germany go to the biggest city in 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 germany and see how much english people speak english uh movies and television taught the dutch how to speak english and they'll tell you they'll tell you that um they watched movies in english their whole life with dutch subtitles instead of having the Simpsons or whatever movie Bruce Almighty instead of yeah. having <laughs> instead of having it dubbed over in their in their native language. 
Maybe we should start watching movies in Dutch and, and repay the favor. I've, Send the love back. Yeah, I don't know. I I mean That's a good way. I mean, that's a good way to, to it learn. Is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just don't know how much uh how how um how much utility I would get out of speaking Dutch. Yeah. Yeah, you'd probably have to go with you know Spanish. But, but like you said, we so we went to Munich. Uh we yeah. went to Berlin and Munich. Um so those were a couple of cities and you're right, like down there it was a little more difficult to well i learned the basic terms i needed to like the right the german's thing. a tough one to pick up too beer and thank you those yeah. are the, the two words the, that i learned the two important yeah words. beer's pretty close to uh yeah that was very easy yeah <laughs> that was so, very easy so i didn't really have to struggle with that one too hard yeah i i uh i guess i was about 18 when i went to amsterdam for the first time and we were we were amazed at like the First off, yeah, how we were able to communicate with the locals, but also like we could go do kind of, they treated us like adults. We could go do do whatever we wanted as long as we didn't, you know, hurt anybody, do anything stupid. They're a country where, you know, socialized medicine is, is, uh, the, is the norm there. And so they kind of have this vibe of like, I don't behave recklessly because my, because I, then I'm a liability to the state and. I, I like I'm I am they they kind of self-police each other yeah. you know because you don't want to behave in a way that is bad for the country uh, because my tax dollars pay for your dumb ass who's you know running red lights in your yeah. car and getting hit <laughs> like like let's let's be smart here let's work together that's one of those good things that that comes out that can come out of that kind of system is like the culture that that it's bred um yeah. over there in particular I, I remember being there and i think that was the first leg of our trip um and we were there i think three four days maybe but uh i remember in those three or four days just remembering like i'd hardly heard i, I count i don't know maybe twice police sirens that i heard yeah so yeah it's like you said everybody just kind of takes care of themselves like I feel like no one really gets in other people's business. They keep to themselves. And um, I was also shocked at like all the bikes there. Like I didn't see one bike wreck. And I mean, these people like it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of like bike highway, like Atlanta. Like, I mean, they're yeah. just like swerving and like, they just have a whole, I'm like, I, I was very shocked. I did not see a bike wreck at all. The last I time I waiting. was in, the last time I was in Amsterdam, I saw uh, just this this image that will not leave my mind. And uh, it was two guys in suits. Uh, one of them was pedaling the bicycle. And th- I mean, they were nice suits. They look like Cristiano Ronaldo in a suit, like like, like super, men in black, <laughs> like yeah. men in black, like <laughs> super fit. You know, their hair is all just so, you know, it's perfect. These guys looked like a million bucks and one of them was riding the bike and the other one was sitting like side saddle on the back, uh, on the like back luggage carrier or whatever. And just sitting there on his, on his phone and they were going to lunch. You know, one of them was pedaling to lunch. It was noon. You know, they had just left their corporate job, I'm sure. And in downtown Amsterdam and they were just riding, riding down to go, go get a bite to eat real quick. But it was just like, these guys are dapper and doing some like, some some pretty amazing bike riding. Right yeah. Well, uh, 
uh, Ben and I are going to get on Gay Street today and try that. Me, so, you and I. So, so yeah. if you if you see us riding, uh, just that's yeah, we kill that's ourselves. We'd, we'd, yeah. we'd, we'd get hit by a car. Yeah. There's only a million people in Amsterdam too. The population is only a million, which yeah, you know, other cities uh, that are that developed and and important to their countries usually have a lot more. I mean, that's that's fewer than Nashville, right? believe so yeah but i mean the cool thing too was like and and it's something i appreciate about like washington dc is like you know it's not tall buildings it's yeah. all um and i i can't remember if they said like i know dc has that you know cap height on building do they um but i can't remember if they said in amsterdam they do or not but it was like you know it was it it felt like i don't know it, it didn't feel like a city but it felt vast like a city. Yeah. My, uh, yeah, talk about people staying out of each other's way there and everybody just kind of doing their own thing. We were walking through Dom Square in Amsterdam and it started to rain. We'd brought an umbrella with us. And my brother, who tended to be kind of clumsy, I mean, he was 15 years old at the time. And we were there just by ourselves in the middle of Amsterdam. Me and him, our parents were back here in the States. We were staying with some friends of ours that lived in The Hague. And we were walking through Dom Square and it started to rain. And my brother opened his umbrella and he hit this guy with his umbrella on accident. Just kind of like nudged into him. And umbrella etiquette in packed cities like that is a big thing. (laughs) And this dude got so mad. He took it out of my brother's hand, he threw it on the ground, and he started stomping, completely ruined this umbrella in the middle of Dom Square. And my brother was traumatized as a 15-year-old oh, kid. He's just like, I'm sorry. Like he didn't speak the other guy didn't speak English either. He was, you know, or or, or maybe Dutch. It was, you know, it, it was it was an someone who didn't even speak the the uh, certainly didn't speak English, but I don't think they spoke Dutch either because they couldn't communicate with our friends who were with us. And uh, it was just like one of those traumatic experiences. But you learn. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully he's uh, gotten an, uh, another umbrella since and uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> picked it back up. Yeah. Well, so when you, you know, I, I think it's super cool that you knew or, you know, identified to take the time after high school to go and to, um, to, to take advantage of that young time in your life where you don't need anything but a backpack to to live and go ahead and have those cool experiences and, and value those yeah. experiences. Did you take like a gap year before you went to college or anything? So I actually did it after college. Oh, you did it after college, yeah. not after high school. So, cause I went oh, from okay. Pellissippi to UT, did journalism. Um, UTC or started at UTC where you um, played football. Yeah. I walked on there. Um, that was, that was kind of a crazy story. Um, yeah. Well, how, how'd that happen? Did you play at Maryville? I did. So I grew up like, big soccer background ah um and then in high school converted to playing football kicking field goals oh okay um so yeah i went down there um walked on for a year um but i really to be honest i only ended up playing a couple of months um i started like right at the beginning of the season and then replace kicking or punting uh, i did both okay um is that a scholarship position at uh, UTC? It is. Okay. Uh, but they had a guy on scholarship that was actually my age, and he won like the Mister Kicker in Tennessee. Yeah. Um, for our grade, but he was injured. Ah. And so the original plan was to bring me on, I guess the year after, as a walk on. Ah. But he was injured, so they went ahead and brought me on, and 
tried out. It went great. Made the team, was practicing and everything. And then, um, yeah, just never really got like the full opportunity to do it. Mm. And it was crazy. It was, it was a full-time job uh, down there. Really? And it was, you know, it was like wake up, work out. E- even, you know, for walk-ons, they required to like wake up, work out, go to class, um, practice at like, you know, one or two. Because all f- they... It was crazy too because I, they changed my whole school schedule around once I walked on. Oh, really? Because um, it was you had to have your classes within a certain time period because there was afternoon practice. Right. And so, yeah, it was like practice from like one to like five. So you walked on in the middle of the year then, or the middle of the school semester. It was. Uh, it was probably. Yeah, like three three weeks into it. But so you was... started the academic part already, yeah. though. So you had to switch that switch yeah, gears there. And, yeah, and somehow they, I don't know, they had a whole like academic team that like switched. Yeah. And I basically, it was it was weird. It was just like I had the same professors. Ah, um, so it just kind of like translated. It was just they kind of, I guess, opened up a spot in like their earlier classes for me. Gotcha. So it it worked out. Um, but then it was after practice. It was like. Then you had time to go have a little dinner, and then you had study hall um, with the football team. Yeah, which I actually—that was like the one thing I wasn't required to do was study hall, which was great. Did you do it anyway? Uh, no, no, no. I was like, I've been going all day, and yeah, you uh, guys have had me by the balls yeah, all day long. I, uh, do I, I wasn't even me. a huge studier anyway. It's yeah. uh, you know, C's, C's get degrees, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, my mom, when I went to high school said, it's okay with me if you make C's and have fun. I was like, what are you talking about? And I'm so glad that, that they did say that. Yeah. And gave me the space to like not put a lot of pressure on myself to, and I still did fine, you know? Yeah. Did fine in school. Yeah. (laughs) I, I'd like to think the the same for me, but, um, C's get degrees. I love it. How long were you, did you play ball? Um, total i guess i played like five years so okay. i played all through high school and then that did one did you uh did you win any state championships at maryville i did i played in three and won one okay george quarles was the coach yeah where's he now he just took the head coach job at etsu at etsu so he was at Furman. he was at Furman. okay yeah and he just he went up there to take the head coaching job which is, is cool. I mean, it's, it's yeah, uh, that's great. Yeah. He, I mean, he was a, he was a great coach and you know, he was a genius. Yeah. He wasn't the one who implemented all the, um, like who did onside kicked and two point conversion every time. Was he in college? There was a high school coach that got promoted somewhere. I want to say it was like somewhere in South Carolina too. And I, it may not have been firm and it may have been like Clinton or Presbyterian, maybe something like that the Presbyterian school in Clinton, South Carolina, uh, where the coach was like, where the coach brought that two point conversion every, every time and onside kick every single time to college football. And everybody's like, no, stop it. You're ruining it. I know it mathematically makes sense. It's like playing Madden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That's cool though, that your, that your high school coach was, I mean, he's legendary and was at Maryville for a long time. Right. Yeah. Before he got, before i mean i always wondered after like maryville won their 12th uh uh national or 
Commonwealth State yeah. Championship in a row or whatever it was. I'm like, when is this guy just going to yeah. take the next step? And he it, finally did. It's wild what he accomplished. How old is he? 50? 60? Uh, 80? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll call it 50. Okay, so he's got some gas left I doubt he'll ever listen to this, but if he ever does hear <laughs> this, I could be, I might be getting a call. Uh, well, he, uh, hopefully he's got some gas in the tank and can keep climbing up the ladder. I mean, if he's a, if he went from, if he didn't have to go the coordinator route in college, at the college level, I mean, he's already the head coach at a division one school, right? Yeah. And it kind of a newer program. So it's exciting to see like, yeah, yeah. He can really make it take off. Yeah. That's exciting. And then still stayed in East Tennessee. The, yeah. The guys, the guys still, still around. Yeah. He didn't Steve Spurrier us and go to yeah. Florida. Yeah. Like a loser. Yeah. What a loser. <laughs> One of my buddies was the kicker for Ole Miss, the guy that I'm going to Mexico with for the fly fishing trip, Ben Meadows. He's been on the podcast before. But yeah. Was, um, do you know him? Yeah. I, I definitely know him from some. He didn't play for Memphis, did he? For I don't, a minute. I don't know if he did or not. I, I, I totally know that name. Maybe Samford. Do they have a football team? Mm-hmm. Do they? Yeah. Maybe he played for them, but he was, he was the kicker at Ole Miss. He may have walked on. He was a kicker there, and then he moved to uh, – and then I think he did go to Samford after that, but yeah, he's in that area that that um, that Alabama, Mississippi, West yeah. Tennessee kind of yeah. Delta uh, area. So he may have he may have done Memphis. I'll have to ask him. I'll see him next week. Uh, but it was interesting to hear his his take on it too, and how much it is like even you know, like you said, you're you're a walk on, but you're still part of the team, and it it ain't no joke, man. It's a it's a full time gig, and I think it's funny that you that you're like recognized it and said this study hall thing, <laughs> I, they'll be all right without me. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I don't think they really lost any sleep over when that I, when I quit. Did uh, you play at all? Did you play in a game? No, no, um, I didn't. And uh, I think that was one thing I recognized too was just like, you know, I'm I'm never gonna get any playing time. So I, uh, you know, it's just. And at that point, I also kind of – that's when I started to realize that maybe camera stuff was what I wanted to do because cool. that was around the time that my aunt had gotten married and yeah, I did the whole uh, Handycam masterpiece. And uh, so I would kind of like shifted my focus to being like maybe I want to go home and start to um, – because, you know, I'd heard about Pellissippi's program and – uh, UTC had one, but it was aimed more towards like news broadcast. Yeah, that's how UT's program is too, right? Yeah, like the journalism major communication yeah, school. That um, I'm definitely appreciative of it, but it was more aimed towards like um, writing, which is a very valuable part of the one at UTC. Uh, or UT, the one at UT, the journalism. Yeah. So, so you 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 left UTC after a year or semester or something, and then went to uh, went to Pellissippi from there. Came home, went to Pellissippi, uh, did their like two year video program. Old Ella Ruggles. Old Ella Ruggles. Yeah, man. Yeah. I had a meeting with her a little while back and uh it's like, listen, yeah, whatever you gotta do, send me your best people. And we've got she sent us two really, really good studs. Yeah. That are really talented and work and work with us now. And uh it's cool to see kids that you know, a different generation than me where they've had cameras in their hands as long as they can remember. And they've been creating things for as long as they can remember because they've had a cell phone or, you know, or 
cameras have been around. The, the Canon 5D has been shooting video almost their whole lives, yeah. you know? Yep. <laughs> and so they, there was never any, there was never a time in their life where they wanted to create something and they couldn't. And so uh, it's really cool to see like a new wave of creator, visual, you know, visual creator um, that, that then goes to a school like Pellissippi where you can hone the technical side of things really well yeah. too. I think they do a good job. Yeah. Man. They they did. I mean, you know, I I think the technology that I learned at Pellissippi is now outdated. But yeah. you know, that was that was a given. Well, um, I think with any kind of instruction that you take like uh, a secondary school like college, um I feel like you shouldn't be expected to come out of it knowing everything. Totally. You should just have to know enough to get started in the real world. Absolutely. I think that's I think that's the most important thing. Well, that's the joy of working in a creative field is like you can never fully learn it. That's true. You know, it's it's something that each situation's unique and you have to adapt creating to that situation. Yeah, and and it's not learning how to use the tools and the technology and all that is important. Because I think it does help you know the parameters in which you can conceive ideas, yeah, and and know what parameters you you have in order to create what's in your brain. Um, kind of acts as it it acts as guardrails a little bit, but it also is it it also I think can uh, instigate some some creative ideas because you learn something that a camera can do, yeah, that. And you're like, oh, well, oh, that means I can do this now. I, and it's the same thing with with programs like After Effects where people are doing animation and all that. It'll do anything you want it to do. What can you conceive of and actually figure out how to make it do it? Yeah. Because it can do it. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, I think Pellissippi, whereas the technology got outdated, it was like the foundations that they taught still are very true and hold up yeah. to, to this day and something that I do still take with me you know each day that you know those those haven't changed and those are things that won't be outdated sure the con the concepts yeah yeah that's why i was glad that i learned on film even though i have not touched film since film school i'm i'm glad that i learned the concepts and the ideas as it related to film because it, then you know why things exist and you know the rules and then you know how you can break them why you would break them and um, and when not to, <clears throat> and, and while I, like I said, haven't touched film since film school, I use the concepts that I learned there every single day, even though I learned it on a different medium, I, I still use the, the concepts, you know, it's the fundamental fun. It's the foundation of my knowledge. It just happens to be in an outdated on an outdated medium, at least for what, for what I do. I don't make feature films, so I don't, I don't get to mess with 35 millimeter film or anything like that anymore <laughs> yeah no I, I agree i think um you know digital is great because you can get the you know real time of of what you're doing but i think part of uh what we do and and learning about it is is failing so i think with with film like you know how many you know in the stills world like you know shooting 35 millimeter it's like how many shots out of your role you know are imperfect and have you know the film burns and the light leaks and all that yeah um which you know 
can do some cool effects, but at the same time from those, it's just kind of like you learn. And I, and I think like each shoot that I do, each concert that I do, you know, the, the, the toughest part about, you know, touring is like each night, like I want to innovate the show. Like how can I make it feel different than the night before? Um, and do you so, mean li- from a live, if you're doing a live stream or do you just, ma- or do you mean if you're capturing it? For just more later? like the content in general. Okay. Um, you know, um, so it's, it's kind of, I, I do things that don't necessarily work, but you know, you live and you learn. It's kind of like, okay, well that didn't work. Um, so I know, but you can also take stuff that didn't work and kind of mold it with something that didn't, you yeah. know? So, you know, as far as like angles or, you know, trying to, I don't know, just come up with like content to do. Different um, rather visual. Than get same angles every night. Yeah. and Different visual storytelling tactics, different, totally. different visual grammar for, for what you're building from Absolutely. a shot standpoint. Uh, Scott West, when he was on the podcast, talked about speed to failure and how, you know, failing is fine. Yeah. Just do it quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and then learn from it. So that's something that digital has helped a yeah. lot is it is instantly gratifying and you can also pick up on, um, on mistakes quickly. So it has kind of spurred innovation a little bit uh, from visual storytelling standpoint, because now you can now you can tell uh, with playback on the back of the camera immediately yeah. if what you got worked or not. How do how can I do it better? Okay, here's how I, here's how I want to change it. Did that work? No, I still need to tweak it a little bit. Okay, and on my third take, I kind of got the thing I was looking for. Yeah. Whereas if you you know you could have shot three takes that were all kind of the same on film because you didn't know that you needed to change something. Yeah. Because it would have been a week later before you got to see yeah. what you shot. Yeah. In a lot of cases, I mean, they're playback systems and all that, but those were expensive. Totally. And we didn't get to play with them. Yeah. Um. I I am glad that film has made you know, come back though. Um, and it's certainly in still photography, people are digging it right now. As I say, it's really made a, a comeback prices and all that are astronomical for film now and yeah and stuff, but it's, it's the cameras are cheap though. Yeah. That's, that's good. A, yeah. Especially if you want to do still, still photography stuff, the, um, you can get a camera body for nothing, but yeah. I mean, they're going up again because yeah. they're, they're, it's like vinyl. It's become, it's becoming, sure a trendy analog yeah. format that is making a comeback but yeah you can find a you know good use a1 pretty what camera is that that's a canon okay um and that's a good intro one is that uh, like a what what format is it 35 millimeter okay uh so that's that's a good solid one but i mean there's there's so many out there like you said that it's affordable to get into it um and it's cool that you can like you can send the ro- film rolls off and the, they'll send you they'll develop it but they send you digital scans stuff. Yeah. yeah so you have it right on your phone yeah um, you it's know really there's, cool there's a lot of friends that I know that you know shoot primarily film that have their own scanning setup and they'll actually you know have a digital camera overhead take a picture of the negative put that on the computer and then invert it so they do their own scanning which actually I've seen side by side results and pretty effective done right will actually come out much better than use a light table or something to backlight it um i've had friends who have and friends who haven't okay um and even when they haven't it's they've still gotten um pretty good results so do you lay the film down on something white yeah okay so you lay the film down on something white if it's like a light table that makes sense right because there's it's being backlit yeah and then you have a camera overhead that just is perfectly that takes a 
perfect, perfectly scaled image. You know, I've seen of that negative. Yeah, I've seen, you know, friends use cheap DSLRs and really, um, you know, kind of a DIY light table. They'll find, you know, like a white table that's somewhat uh, transparent um, and just like flashlight under it. Or yeah, something. it's not not fully transparent. I guess what's the word like opaque. Semi-opaque, semi-transparent, translucent. Sure, maybe. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but just transparent enough where like you can shine a light through, and that you know, just a flashlight below, oh, um, cool. just over the negatives, and then yeah, and it's. I mean, they use just a cheap DSLR, and uh, I've seen plugins for like Lightroom and stuff like that that are made for this, where it actually inverts it and kind of will enhance it. Lightroom just knows how to decode the what a what a negative is yeah, into digital, and I think it's some third party oh, uh, gotcha. plugin. But that's I, just super neat. I've not thought about that as the way that I mean, as a DIY way to to develop your film. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so I guess in the long run, it uh, could save you some money, but at the same time, you know, dropping it off with someone that you know and trust is uh, yeah. The time is, is worth it as well. Uh, have you used F32 mm-hmm. in town? Do they do good work? Yeah, they do great work. Um, Thompson Photo um, oh, as yeah. well. They're God, great. man, they've been around so long. They have. You go in that place, man, it's like a... A museum. It is. <laughs> it is. And it's in such a the weird part of... The aesthetic in there is... Uh, it's immaculate. Yeah. It, it's it's right on. Yeah. It, it, the, that style is going to come back around again. Totally. Really totally. Um, <laughs> the, the, the grandpa's basement yeah, uh, vibe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, F32 is great. Uh, and I have a good relationship with them. So they, you know, they can turn things around in, in 24 hours. Is that guy's name Matt? Is that the guy that yeah. owns it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes when I'm on the road, I'll shoot a couple rolls of film and want to turn them around quick. So they're always really good at that. That's um, awesome. I need to, I need to get a better relationship with those guys. I've always wanted to shoot more film, but these, um, these like, Fuji street photography cameras are pretty sweet too. Yeah. Like the digital ones mm-hmm. that have like a 28 millimeter prime on them or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I had one of those for a minute um, and really, really enjoyed it. I think that was, that was one of the last cameras I had before I upgraded. Um, uh, the, uh, do you know Mike Deering? Do you know that name? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, he, uh, he, t- he just got back from Italy where he, Proposed to his fiance, Katie. Congratulations. Congratulations. Uh, but he just got back and he he rented a um, a small street photography camera. I forget what it was, but he took it to Italy with him and he was there for like a couple weeks. And he came back with just some of the most brilliant, beautiful stuff. Yeah. From those little from those little point point and shoot yeah. <laughs> street photography cameras. Yeah. I, th- I think the one I had was like the X one hundred V or yeah. F or something. But it was it was great. And it was, I mean, compact, easily yeah. throw in a backpack and just fix a lens and it's, you know. Got a little wrist strap so you don't get robbed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Put, put you in those big cities. You never know what's going to happen. You got to have, have a special fanny pack for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, especially like on trips and stuff. I used to take... A big ass bag full of gear, body, and like four lenses and stuff. And then yeah. I, I just it got to a point where I was just showing myself that I was like spending more time like trying to switch lenses and stuff. And it was just 
Yeah. You know, work within some parameters, exactly. work, you know, have some limitations. Exactly. I took, um, what, one of the coolest like photo trips I did is, is I, uh, helped a uh, friend of mine with his art installation at Bonnaroo one year. And we got there super early in the week, like Monday or Tuesday. And I just took like a, I think I had a, I think I had a Nikon D 300. It wasn't a full, it was a crop sensor, but I had a, I took one lens. I took a 50 millimeter 1.4 uh, lens and just shot the entire weekend through a 50 millimeter lens. And it was one of the coolest like exercises in photography that I've done before. Cause it was free yeah. to not have choices. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you, you you're going to frame it for, with what you got. Um, yeah. Yeah, That's, move your feet and know what yeah. know what the optics are and and know that you're not going to get a close wide shot of anything. <laughs> yeah. I've I've been much happier with a pared down travel package for sure. Have so, you? Um What's your favorite uh way to uh capture this video stuff in a high quality way that uh is also not super cumbersome? Like if you're shooting a band, for instance, like shooting a moon taxi show, have you like leaned into these cameras that are not as needy as they used to be as far as being able to get cinematic quality out of a camera or cinema quality out of a camera that uh, also has is user friendly and doesn't take three people to operate like they used to? Yeah. So I've, I've been traveling with uh, for a while. It was like a black magic 6k oh cool um and that camera is great because it's high quality but it's also very easy to use it's small right yeah it's yeah damn yeah this the size of it kind of feels like almost a dslr type body yeah um, but then i've also uh last fall um i used a red komodo yeah which eddie's komodo uh mine oh you have one yeah okay yep. um and so, so it's a nice dynamic because we both have one. So we're always like, if we need a second cam, we just kind of like, hey, That's like, scratch your back. I'll scratch, you know. Yeah. Uh, That's a really small camera body, right? It is. And uh, a big thing for me too is it has that built-in screen on it. Uh, um, so I don't necessarily use it for like the viewfinder, but for the menus. Oh, it's, gotcha. It's great. Yeah. Um, but I, I took that on the road with me and got some great looking stuff. Um and enjoyed it. It was a little more cumbersome than the uh, Pocket 6K, but yeah. overall, it's the nice thing about it being small is you can pare it down as small as you want. You can right. build it as big as you want. Yeah, that's um, yeah. I guess like to explain to people who don't know a little bit when the first when the first video when the first like viable digital cinema camera came out, it was made by a company called Red, the Red One. They, they were kind of the first ones in the space who were like, okay, video is going to be the future and it we need to make a cinema quality camera body. And it was clunky and it was huge and it was hard to use and it was loud and it ate through batteries. and But if you wanted to use digital, that's what you had to use. And so they were kind of the first players that came into the game. And then you cut to whatever, two years ago when they came out with a Komodo, the damn thing is... Uh, the size of about two uh, two of these twelve ounce cans next to each other. These recess cans. Re recess. <laughs> these recess cans here. I mean, it's so small. It's like 
How, how I mean, it's like six inches by six inches, isn't it? The, yeah. The camera body, but it's a six inch cube. The, I was gonna say the first thing that came to mind was like a Nintendo GameCube, but it's even yeah. smaller than that. It's uh, it's like a small Jack in the Box almost. Yeah. Uh, and, and and then you connect a lens to it, and you're making cinema quality, you know, you know Top Gun yeah, <laughs> quality right? is cinematography. It's amazing what's happening with technology like that. And like I said, I mean, you can build it out as big as you want and make it look like this full feature film camera, or you can just throw two of, you know, just the small, terrible batteries on the back, but put a pancake lens and you're basically, it's, you're just holding it in the palm of your hand. Yeah. So it's, it's a very, uh, durable and very, uh, modular versatile yeah. system yeah, yeah absolutely and you can fly it on small gimbals too yeah so uh you can get people really, use drones yeah people fly them with drones with like, drones, like yeah. octocopters and yeah. things like that they're just not that big and heavy yeah. anymore which is so cool I, I i i love that because like man i don't mean to like be the old get off my lawn man but like when i when i started which wasn't that long ago i mean it was 15 years ago or so the the barrier to entry was so high to owning your own camera body, to owning your own production company that nobody did it. And I'm so glad that now it's become something that, you know, we may be nerding out a little bit, but it's something that two guys that meet at a uh, meet in public that don't know each other can actually have intelligent conversations about because it's the technology is so accessible to people now that more people are getting into the space and, video content is more needed than ever before. And I'm sure it will continue to be more needed than ever before. so it's not like we're going to, there's not, we're not going to go the other way with yeah. not needing video content. Um, so it's actually like, it's been cool to watch the industry grow into something that is a job that people really have instead of some elitist, you know, kind of auteur director mentality where I'm better than everybody else. Cause I'm the only person in the world who can make these beautiful images. Totally. You know, it's yeah. cool to, that it's now an industry that people understand and can, and, uh, and can interact with on, on you know, everybody needs what we do yeah. now, no yeah. matter what kind of business you're in, you need it. If yeah. you're smart, I think it's pretty cool. I think, I'll, you know, these people that are grateful to do what we do and all that, like you said, have access to, to jump in um, with that quality. And there's such a, a need for collaboration for what we do. Mm. Um, you know, being on the road, I'm, I'm a one man show with it. And uh, every day I'm just like, I, if I, if I could just have like a AC or something, it'd be so great, you know, but, yeah. um, but I mean, just having, having a team uh, and, and collaborating, I've learned has been the biggest thing. Like you, you can't, can't do it all yourself so it's nice to have access to things like that um where more people have access to you know that type of stuff um that you know you can bring a lot of good people in on yeah and it's like you know i've, I've heard your name for a, a while now but we've never worked together and but now if we want to you know yeah. we speak the same language already yeah. and it's just it hasn't always been like that it yeah. hasn't always been where you have um where, where you have people in this town in particular, but that can, where, where you have as many people as you want that you can call up if you have an issue, if you have a problem, if you want some advice, if you want to, uh, you know, hire them to do something, if, you know, you want to ask them if they've got anything you can help them with. I mean, the, the marketplace is so full of very capable, very talented people. 
in town right now and it's very exciting yeah that, that's what i love about knoxville because the industry is it's really taken off and, and booming but it's also and they, the southern hospitality aspect of it i guess is just everybody's like you know kind and and willing to to help each other out you know yep. it's so so many jobs it you know I've, i feel like i've been fortunate that i haven't had to really go out there and pursue a lot of leads because i a lot of friends that i work with in the industry you know when they get calls for gigs that they can't do then they're you know they'll call me or they'll call somebody else so it's it's reaching out to other people and it's not just like a i don't know like a pretentious attitude towards us like i think in in the industry across the you know across uh the industry just in general that um kind of gets attached to it like there's there's very like a, a teammate mentality here in yep. town and i think that's why knoxville's you know doing really well and, and thriving and- I, I think so too and i've seen it in other markets and my my time working in la was a long time ago um and i worked in kind of a different part of the industry i worked in reality television mostly and i saw it to be a very different kind of attitude in the marketplace and what than what we have here uh but when i moved to knox moved back to knoxville after school and started and started putting it out there that I wanted to do this. It, it was at a time where it was at a time where a lot of the older players that were in the, the uh, filmmaking marketplace were seeing in the filmmaking industry, they were watching it change and they were nervous because you were seeing this big move. They'd all worked on film their entire careers. And there was this huge paradigm shift where things were becoming digital. The Canon 5d was, had proven itself to make an image that was passable for, for content. And so I think these people were, were uh, kind of at the end of, of an era ultimately. And so they were worried about the industry going away and looking, you know, either going away completely or it turning into something that they don't recognize. And I think that those people that I engaged with pretty early on, the Michael Underwoods, the, the Tony Carapis of the world, uh, that had made, you know, Tony Carapi was on um, uh, Shawshank Redemption, for instance, like worked a- as a grip on that, I think. So working on these big film sets, somebody who thir- storied 30 years in the industry uh, has seen it all. People like that were saw somebody like me who was trying to come into the, this new space that I didn't know a whole lot about. Uh, and they were willing to help me because they knew that legacy mattered and that that they could make an impact on the direction of the industry by passing on their knowledge and they were com- they were confident enough in their own world and space to where they didn't feel threatened by somebody new instead they felt like they could affect the next generation by passing on knowledge to someone who's going to you know, continue to proliferate their legacy as well. So, um, that was, that was really special to me to see. And I don't know that you're going to see that in a market like Atlanta where everybody is so after the amount of work that's there right now and in somewhat of a film boom town, mm-hmm. ultimately everybody's going after their piece of the pie. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that, it, that that attitude doesn't exist down there, but when I go down there and work, it does, I don't, I don't feel the same, I don't feel the same, uh, attitude and warmth on set that I feel here yeah. at all. I feel like everyone's, everyone is, uh, just kind of secure in their position and what they do. And they, 
see a new person or see someone that they're working with as, uh, as, uh, an equitable partner in what they're doing rather than a threat to them, uh, in, in the future. And I think that's very important that we keep that good vibe around here and, uh, get excited when we see new people that we haven't worked with before, like, like this. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. I, 100%. And I, I think, you know, kind of like you spoke to, like that attitude is what keeps a lot of these jobs coming to Knoxville. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of features that have been coming here are, you know, it it seems to just gaining more and more. And I keep getting calls about features that are, yeah, you know, coming to town for months at a time to shoot. And it seems like the kind of the names that are with it are getting bigger and bigger. So I think that people are starting to um, recognize Knoxville as a place where there's a lot of good people here that are very talented. Yep. Um, well, you're you're looking at you know, the Dolly Parton movie is in town right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's a lot of big names attached to that. And there was, um, from, from what I understand, there was a, a um, there was some work at the, at the state level, um, at the Tennessee entertainment commission, uh, Bob Rains is the Tennessee entertainment commissioner, kind of the film commissioner for Tennessee. And, uh, they wanted so badly Dolly Parton to not shoot this movie in, in Georgia um, that from my understanding, they made a very competitive, uh, offer from a tax incentive standpoint that is not law. It's not, it's not what our, our, our tax incentives are for Tennessee, but they said, you know, let's try it with this movie. And, and if it'll keep you from going to Georgia, then we'll, then we'll give you rebates and money, money back from, you know, hotel taxes or what, however they do it. Um, because it is stimulating the economy, but we got to get better. We have to, we have, if we're going to compete with, with Georgia and Louisiana, we're going to have to get better with our tax incentive structure. And I think that this is very, this is a, this move, this Dolly movie coming to town is a very, is a very important step. It might seem small, but I think it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a trial run. Let's see how this goes. Let's, let's break it down. Let's do a postmortem on this after the movie's over. Um, and see what the economic impact on it is and what does this look like at scale if we can bring a lot of this to the state of tennessee is that good for us is it bad for us does does it move the needle does it not does it put production companies out of business because they can't find talent anymore because you know movies are still are taken up all the time like there's there's a lot of implications uh or there's a lot of things that a lot of options what can what can happen but i i anecdotally think or i uh, uh, just kind of intuitively feel like it will be net good if we can get our tax incentives more in line with, with Georgia. Yeah, I think this is a good start too. I mean, Dolly Parton. It's it seems wrong for her to shoot anywhere I mean, else. It's Dolly Parton. I mean, you know, people around this area are all gonna go for it no matter what it is. People know? around the world are. She's she's having a moment, and it and it's not. She's a saint. Yeah. Yeah. She's you know everybody loves Dolly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I. And I, and I think Knoxville has such a landscape to offer too that makes it great to shoot here. Yeah. With, the, with the true crime, I mean, we're faking everything from, you know, deserts in New Mexico to, you know, 
you know, northeast sure. in like the fall. So yeah. it, East Tennessee can play as a lot of different landscapes. It does. It gives you yeah. a lot of flexibility. Um, yeah. So I think there's there's so many perks to our area that that we're we're kind of sitting on a, a gym here. Yeah. Agreed. Well, man, I'm super glad that we got to do this, and I'm very glad to meet you. And I hope that uh, this is the uh, uh, beginning of of a good friendship and working relationship too. I think so. Yeah. No. Thanks for having me on. I uh, the roster of people that you've had before, a lot of people I look up to. So it was, uh, you know, when you hit me up, it was something I definitely was excited to do and was honored to be a part of. So awesome, man. Well, let's uh, let's keep up the good work, and we'll uh, we'll do it again sometime. All right. Take care. Yeah. There it is. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you guys want to engage with us on social media, at South of Scruffy on Instagram, at South of Scruffy on Twitter. Thanks for being here. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. See you real soon, all right? Pitchwire. Play me out.